HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, you're listening to HeritageRadioNetwork.com. Today we'd like to send a special thank you to the following restaurants for supporting No Goat Left Behind, Adamanelli and Sons, and Salamuria Rossi. Show your support at these restaurants by ordering one of the menu items featuring goat. Goat is the most eaten protein in the entire world, yet in the U.S. we import most of our goat. Our dairy farms are forced to kill some male goats at birth because there's no market for them. Help make a change. Support No Goat Left Behind. The following message has been brought to you by Fairway Market. What's the buzz about honey? Well, those busy little bees are up to something, and it is delicious. The Fairway label honey is superb. Fairway only hires worker bees that are the best at what they do. This makes for a great-tasting, high-quality honey at an amazing value with the Fairway stamp of approval. And on top of being delicious, honey is a great substitute for other sweeteners and can even benefit your health. This includes better energy, respiratory improvements, and balanced blood sugar levels. It's a no-brainer. Get your Fairway honey today. Welcome to another episode of Let's Eat In on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Arway. We're here at Roberta's, as usual. It's a gorgeous Indian summer Monday in the middle of October. That's always nice. A little backlash of, of summer. Uh, my, my vegetables are actually really dry this morning, and I actually watered them for the first time in a while. But they're still kicking. Um, so today's guest, I'm really excited because uh, she ju- she's about to come out with a book this weekend called An Everlasting Meal, Cooking with Economy and Grace. And what exactly does that mean? Um, I thought I'd read a little passage from the first, actually the first page of the book. <laughs> I really dug deep <laughs> to get this <laughs> quote. Um, okay. Um, But this is not a cookbook or a memoir or a story about one person or one thing. It is a book about eating affordably, responsibly, and well, because doing so relies on cooking. It is mostly about that. Cooking is both simpler and more necessary than we imagine. It has in recent years come to seem a complication to juggle against other complications instead of what it can be, a clear path through them. 
So, oh wait, let me go on. If we are to weed today through all the advice for how to eat better and choose what we ourselves feel most able and like best to do, we must regain our faith that cooking can be advantageous, something that helps eating well makes makes sense. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) It's the Indian summer. It's the Indian summer. Um, So that is by Tamar Adler. Thanks so much for being here. Of course. That was really gorgeous. Um, And this book... It's just, it's actually filled with prose, as well as recipes. It's not a cookbook. It's, I don't know, what do you call it? It's cross-genre, I think. It's (laughs) cross-genre. I mean, that's not what I call it. I think Mm -hmm. it is, um, I think it's narrative and instructional. And its point is to kind of awaken people and guide them through the kitchen, as opposed to directing them. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like those are really different things those are actually I mean they seem similar but those are really different energies right one is kind of ordering people and one is giving them a hand right and sort of staying with them through the process of thinking about cooking and then cooking and then serving and eating yeah I can definitely see that in your recipes too because uh I, I, and I know what you mean by like the didactic tone that sometimes cookbooks can have like looking through old cookbooks it's like you must rinse this or something or I mean I guess you should rinse everything but you know you must <laughs> peel this tomato I don't know and um your your recipes are kind of um it's, it's more relaxed and it's just kind of cozy well, I think that that you know one of the things that I am trying to counteract in the writing of this book and getting this book out there is the sense that we have that cooking is staccato and recipes are staccato um, and I mentioned this in the introduction, but I think it, I mean, I could have gone on about it for a chapter mm-hmm. because um, recipes make it seem like you're supposed to start with absolutely nothing and cut a cup of something. Or and buy measure, all this stuff. Buy all this stuff, exactly. Start at the very beginning and then the meal stops. Um, you know, the, pre- the preparation stops once you've cooked it and mm-hmm. the meal stops once you stand oh. up from the table. And... Um, the reason for the title of the book, which is an everlasting meal, and the reason that the recipes read differently is that I wanted to imbue all of the food preparation and all of the food um, presentation in the book with a sense of continuity yeah. that I think is what makes cooking make sense. Oh, that's so true. You know what? A lot of people asked me when I was doing this two years of not eating out. They're like, well, how do you, how did you do that? And my most frequent re- response was like, if you just cook a little more often, and I use this term, it has a domino effect, which is not as uh, beautiful and graceful their, as... No, it is. I think oh, really? they wrote topple like dominoes. That meals oh, yeah. have to topple like dominoes into yeah. one another. I think which is, great. I was trying to say, like, you're going to have stuff in your fridge and stuff like that. Yeah. It okay. takes on, uh, you know, a wave-like quality, a tide-like quality, mm-hmm. I think. You know, things sort of get pushed into one meal and then you eat a lot of it and some gets drawn back to shore and then Mm. when the wave goes out again that is so poetic it's more (laughs) and i think domino effect people may have been like intimidated like i don't know i don't want to step into that jungle but uh (laughs) you make it seem really fun thank you and graceful (laughs) so and when did you have this like light was it like a lightning bulb thing like people aren't cooking what eh, what This book is inspired by How to Cook a Wolf by MFK Fisher. Mm -hmm. And I have always, since I read that book, wanted to refresh its messages because they're just as relevant. It was written in 1942. And it was 
you know, similarly written by MFK Fisher, by MFK Fisher, who's, you know, the doyen of, of food writing, um, or literary food writing. Yeah. And, uh, 1942, there were food shortages and food rationing. And there was, like right, like there is right now, a lot of dogma around eating. And mm. people felt like it was much... It was, it was hard. It was hard to eat well. Mm-hmm. And it was hard to cook. And what that book did was, instead of telling people to tighten their belts and make do, it, it offered a helping hand. Mm-hmm. Um, back to the kitchen. And then, and then really showed how pleasure could be... Um, could be fostered there right. through cooking pleasure and cheerfulness because how to t- cook a wolf that's kind of tongue-in-cheek i mean she wasn't t- trying to tell anybody no but a wolf you know what a, a wolf um was the wolf of hunger a wolf mm-hmm. is a you know a, a sort of poetic and now antiquated term for um for 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 being hungry and mm-hmm. so she was saying you know the wolf of hunger is scratching at our doors and we're going to cook it instead of letting it in and I have always wanted to make those messages relevant. And as eating has eating well has come to seem more important and more difficult, uh, it's also instructions about how to or directions and recommendations for how to have become as dogmatic as they were then. Mm-hmm. And I think it's making people feel stressed. Do you think that there's a certain um, uh, atmosphere right now that people would possibly need this reminder um similar to when mfk mfk fisher was writing and she felt people needed to know this is there some similarities i mean i think that 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 the zeitgeist now um is probably even more receptive to these messages um than it was then yeah um because now i mean as you know you're working on the same stuff there is an incredible desire to um to get into our kitchens. And the problem is that we don't have the tools um, that we need to, to make that, that return make sense to right. us. So we're kind of turning to our kitchens and instead of seeing welcoming environments, we're, we're finding hostile ones yeah. because uh, we don't really know what to do when we get there. And I think that, you know, that a direct correlation between her situation and right. ours is that that the available resources for what to do in our kitchens are not helpful. Okay. So I wanted to provide something that was actually helpful based on what people feel able to do and what they have that also isn't um, sort of in the, in the the, the small and rather intense category of 30 minutes or less, (laughs) 15 ingredients (laughs) for 15 meals. 20 ways to use a can of beans. I mean, you know, it's just not, it doesn't need to be that sort of grim yeah. or that, you know, I find that also neurotic <laughs> and it, it, it doesn't need to be. So, you know, I think people in 1942 were feeling a really great neurotic pressure yeah, and this, people so are this now. This is a wartime situation and this is a big national concern. And right now it's almost seems, you know, there's people protesting cause they're unemployed uh, the last few weeks the you know it's a depression it's sort of a yeah it's a recession it is really similar i mean Mm -hmm. you know unemployment as we know is at 9.1 percent the article came out today saying that incomes dropped between the end of the recession and this past june by 6.7 percent and that's supposed to be after the recession i mean we are at 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 different kinds of war 
on different fronts. So and what do you think happened in the time between? Did we just get uh, fat and happy with uh, <laughs> spending or I don't know? No, I mean, there's really, you know, there are great, there are different and great analyses of it. But part of what happened was that, um, you know, convenience food showed up and relieved what had been an enormous burden on on women. Mm. And that was, you know, and, and I think that was welcomed. Um, there's also, you know, the fact that industrially produced food made it, um, made food less expensive mm-hmm. and made it a lot easier for food companies to do, you know, mass production of uh, very cheap, stuff and essentially it became like inexpensive convenience food became widely available yeah. and, and and marketing too because well right who who has commercials for apples i guess they do now but that's well, not quite the same extent right. as cheerios yeah and i think that you know people really pushed women toward convenience food mm-hmm. um it was you know the home economics movement was incredibly powerful and that's not what that's not what we think of as like home ec classes. It's the sense that um, complete efficiency and um, sort oh, of. Oh yeah, I don't, I don't remember learning that. <laughs> home yeah, ec. well, you know, it's um, there's a great there's a great book by Laura Shapiro that I don't remember the name of now, but that traces the um, kind of the removal of the means of production from from the School. hands of housewives. Oh, okay, no. and that. You know, it, it really was this whole movement of people who were saying that the goal was to, um, you know, eventually the goal was to not have, have to any do, food production yeah. at home, yeah. to have food production outside of the house yeah. and have um, centralized sources where, you know, like hubs where people would come and pick up already made food and the kitchen would be this sort of clean, unsullied um, room, hmm. domain that, you know, that, that sounds was... sounds kind of freaky. Yeah. Towns. And and the funny thing is that it's not that dissimilar from what we have now. Mm-hmm. You know, I think like it kind of worked. Or no kitchens in some right. instances, no yeah. especially in the city. Well, how did you um, start, you know, you, you were inspired by the book and the messages, but you've been a cook as well. Correct? Yeah. Yeah. I think it took me a long time to feel like I knew how to breathe new life into her messages right. it's so learning the skills and yeah i mean yeah. i grew up cooking but i think it took a lot of on the ground experience for me to be able to say very precisely this is what you need you know mm. um i always had a sense of it but i think putting it on paper would have been hard for me i would have had to say literally come into my kitchen with me and what i try to do in this book is say um you know kind of metaphorically come into my kitchen with me and then show people what it is like in my kitchen. Mm. Um, and that took time spent in yeah. kitchens. And I've always loved, I mean, I felt pulled toward professional cooking. And yeah. And you were a cook at Chez Panisse for how many years? No? I was only at Chez Panisse for about a year and a half. Okay. And then got called back in sometimes. Uh-huh. I've always said that Chez Panisse is a little bit like um, the CIA. You know, CIA. Yeah, you're always on call. Okay, you never get out. (laughs) Maybe it's not the CIA, but it's like being a spy. Okay. Yeah. Does it still happen now? Um, No, but you still get phone calls when. Really. Yeah, when Alice is in town and there's some event that has to happen on the East Coast, there are um, there are cells. Okay. Of 
of Chez Panisse alumni oh. everywhere who, you know, get a call like, like you see in the movies and then you get called to service. This sounds pretty interesting. So you're like branded for life <laughs> yes, totally. as a part of the this yeah. cult. Yes. Family. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's really neat. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I was at Chez Panisse for, I guess, about a year and a half. And before that, I had been the chef of a restaurant that I opened with friends in Georgia. Okay. Um, and that, that is also, that also played a large role in the writing of this book because we felt there as inexperienced restaurant owners, a lot of the pressures that people feel when they're trying to eat sustainably on a shoestring budget mm. now, because okay. we were a restaurant on a shoestring budget, trying to eat locally yeah. and sustainably. And it was hard. And we had to come up with a lot of the strategies that I think are peasant cooking strategies and the strategies in the book. Yeah, I hear this so much uh, from like chefs and restaurants. It's like they use, they know how to use leftovers and make it economical. And it's so funny that, um, you know, people don't realize they can do the same at home, you know. Well, I mean, it's what you do. And it's, yeah, it's what you have to do to make anything viable, right? Run a restaurant and... And it looks great in the end. You would never guess, you know. I mean, chicken stock, as you know, is the best example of it. No, mm-hmm. no restaurant. I mean, a few restaurants will use just water for their soups, and they can also be delicious. But, you know, the finest restaurant in the world relies on chicken stock, which is made from what we consider garbage, uh-huh. right? <laughs> compost. <laughs> yeah, scraps. <laughs> one bucket for compost, one bucket for, well, actually, it could be the same thing. Well, <laughs> Chicken yeah. stock. Yeah, but, like, instead of your garbage... You know, people, we've already made it to the place where people think instead of my garbage, I could put stuff in my compost mm-hmm. for my garden. But what I'm saying in this book is, okay, instead of putting stuff in your <laughs> compost for your garden, eat it. put stuff in your chicken, <laughs> chicken, chicken stock pot. Yeah, eat it. Yeah. Very cool. Simpler. All right. Well, um, so what are you, what are you hoping that, um, whoa, sorry. Um, what do you think <laughs> is like the biggest takeaway from, from reading instead of just enjoying it? Would that be what we just said or um well i think that it's something more concrete which is that what the missing piece in the conversation about how to eat better is in order to follow the recommendations to eat food and mostly plants and food that only Oh, like a pollen there. Yeah, you know, which mm-hmm. is some of the best advice out there. But Alice Waters' advice is also great, and Eric Schlosser's, and all of the people who've said, you know, this is the kind of food we should be buying, whole food, whole ingredients, um, locally grown food, that that seems hard for us because we lack the skills um, that we need for it to seem possible, for and it to seem plausible. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, I think that one of the best ways of putting it is Michael Pollan says that we should only buy food our grandmothers or great-grandmothers would recognize. Well, in order for that to make sense, we need sort of the set of lenses with which our grandmothers and great-grandmothers assessed the food around them. Mm-hmm. And so what, I, what I'm providing in this book is that set of lenses. And once we have it, I think that following that advice is actually possible. Well, that is very inspiring. And um, I, I hope that a lot of people will take that to heart. And, and sometimes it starts with just learning one recipe and then you're like, oh, well, that turned out really good. Like this, this bread here or something. So hopefully more domino effects yeah, domino will effect. take place. Tides and dominoes. <laughs> dominoes. So um, we're going to have a little musical break. And I know you picked out a song. I, I think I know why now. Right. Um, George on your mind. So we'll be right back. Thank you. 
Georgia Georgia The whole day through Just an old sweet song Keeps Georgia on my mind Said a Georgia, Georgia, a song of you comes as sweet and clear as moonlight through the pines. Other arms reach out to me Other eyes smile tenderly Still in All right, nice choice, Tamar. Thank you. Um, we're back on Let's Eat In with Tamar Adler, the author of the upcoming An Everlasting Meal, Cooking with Economy and Grace. That was her musical choice. Um, so just want to mention also that this book is being released on the 18th, really soon. And to celebrate that, Tamara's going to have a book reading, a lively book reading at uh, Book Court um, in Brooklyn, where uh, herself and Francine Stevens, the founder, co-owner of Franny's in Brooklyn, uh, will have a conversation about cooking gracefully, and uh, they'll have some food <laughs> to share, some snacks. Prepared by tomorrow and um, some other alumni from Chez Panier. Uh, cult yeah. members, should I say? Yes, cult, one, <laughs> one former cult member, I guess current cult member, as per what I said earlier, and um, two of my apprentices from the Edible Schoolyard in Brooklyn this summer. So it will be a cross-coastal. You were in the Edible Brooklyn this summer? Yeah, I was. I was actually their first culinary teacher. We started a culinary program this summer. Okay. Um, it's a, a PS216. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. Mm. Were you involved with the Edible Schoolyard back in Berkeley? I wasn't. I mean, I, you know, I was cooking yeah. um, Stop from full, there. full time. Um, actually, it doesn't, you know, all of the oh, food right. that comes from there goes to the school. But, um, you know, there's a very close relationship between the Edible Schoolyard at Martin Luther King and Chez Panisse because it was started by the Chez Panisse Foundation and funded mm-hmm. by the Chez Panisse Foundation. Um, and, uh, you know, and the one, the, the Edible Schoolyard in Gravesend at PS216 is... Um, sort of affiliated uh, in terms of ethos and um, it's sort of its genesis in the same in the foundation and in the same you know the same people Um, but this is the first one that I worked at and my apprentices have been looking forward to the release of this oh that's great book were your apprentices like students or uh, no one of them um, was a Montessori teacher who just moved to New York and one is a former line cook and both of them are um, really excited about edible education. Yeah. Um, and uh, all summer we did a very good job of making food everlastingly. We used uh-huh. stuff from the yeah. garden and we made a lot of toasts, which <laughs> are a big part of the book. You know, um, 
we didn't have an oven. Things on top of bread. Yeah, things on top of bread. So that's what we're also doing at the book launch okay. party. Really amazing things. You know what? I did something of... like that at my book launch party at Word Bookstore. I <laughs> roasted beets on top of bread and something. I think it was a reduction of vinegar, balsamic. And yeah, well, cheese. you know, trenchants were bread plates in the Middle Ages. Bread, mm-hmm. bread used to be used as plates. Trenchants? What? Yeah. What's that? It's a bread plate. Oh, okay. (laughs) (laughs) So we're we're making, we're doing bread plates with really delicious things on them. Nice. Um, Is it from the edible garden that you're working at? No, we're doing, actually, um, my friend at Bark Hot Dogs is um, contributing all of the vegetables. And they're just from, you know, they'll be from the green market. um, They're folks, okay. And, uh, yeah, and, and it will be really amazing, you know. That sounds like a great like community uh, work um, teamwork right here. Yes, um, Franny Stevens and yeah. Well, it's it. You know, we have a great food community in Mm -hmm. Brooklyn, and everybody has definitely rallied together around this book, which is so great. Mm -hmm. You know, it really is like. But the whole the whole family of the Franny's. It's not unshapen easy. There's a there's a branching family that's there. Definitely know, is. Yeah. Uh, maybe a cult to come. We'll see. Yeah, CTC cult to come. <laughs> um, and uh, you know, I spent a little time in uh, San Fran recently, and uh, I came back. You know, and you've you've been there for a while. So, what do you think are like some of the differences, or, or are there in the in the food communities? We are very um, hmm. we're trend based in a way that um, New York is. Yeah, I think New York is, is still sees food in terms of fashion in a way that the Bay Area doesn't. Yeah. And I think right now we're in a little bit of danger of all of the really good developments of the last okay. um, little while, which, you know, are, are mostly based in Brooklyn, um, being uh, being kind of branded as mm-hmm. a trend, which 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 puts them at risk of um, becoming untrendy. Yeah. And, you know, that would be a shame because we have an incredible burgeoning artisanal community here and we have gardens on a ton of rooftops with their produce being served by... Over our heads. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and it's so good. And, you know, that is a great similarity. That The difference is that we have a really high metabolism for mm-hmm. trends here. And the Bay Area is... D- doesn't have that there's yeah. a there's a rootedness to all of this stuff um and i hope it takes root well i hope here. that home cooking doesn't become overly trendy and then blow out <laughs> or something yeah. and i don't really see that happening i mean the funny thing about this terrible economy is that it it does actually create the perfect environment for returning to our kitchens because yeah. uh not having a job does mean a little bit more time and i don't think that that cooking well takes more time, but I think settling into the idea of, of, um, taking back sort of the means of production of our food, um, might take a little bit of time and we have that. And, you know, it also, it is also just literally true that we need to find a way to eat both more healthfully Mm -hmm. and more affordably. And that's what, that's what cooking, especially, grounded peasant cooking allows and the economy unfortunately isn't getting better but you know for the cause of cooking it's not it's not a terrible thing yeah 
Well, I, I'm looking, you know, I'm very curious to see what will happen. And um, your book is definitely a great contribution to this to this effort. Um, speaking of cooking, I'm getting really hungry now thinking about Yes. Because I've actually had the pleasure of tasting some of tomorrow's food before, and it's really astounding. So, I forgot that you, yeah, yeah, you did. It was really amazing. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, what is your perfect date meal? Um, you know, it's this is really embarrassing, but probably a version of the meal that you had is okay. my perfect that squid meal for stew everything. was amazing. <laughs> <laughs> the beans. <laughs> Doesn't that sound very date-like to no, you? Squid okay. stew and beans. Well, you describe it. And don't okay. forget the garlic mayonnaise. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> um, that was based on uh, a grand aioli, which is a Provencal meal that sounds very complicated. Grand aioli? Yeah. Aioli. Big aioli Big sauce? aioli. What? Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, aioli refers both to the sauce and mm-hmm. to the, the ritual meal surrounding it. I did not know that. Um, it's great. You know, it's, it's sort of like... Um, well, I was going to say spaghettata, which is, you know, a big spaghetti sort of festival. That sounds pretty romantic. A spaghettata. <laughs> it's like Lady and the Tramp. Yeah. You know, you have one big bowl of spaghetti. And, and aioli is um, garlic mayonnaise. But in the sort of spring and summer, not sort of spring and summer, in the spring and summer, <laughs> um, it's a traditional meal in Provence. And the way it is created is everybody makes aioli. Mm-hmm. By pounding up garlic and making a mayonnaise, okay. very simple, of olive oil and um, egg yolk. And then a ton of vegetables and eggs, which, you know, only come back into season in the spring mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. chickens start laying, um, are very simply prepared or served raw. And the way the meal works is that all of those simply prepared vegetables and eggs are dipped into the mayonnaise and you okay. drink rosé. And right. it's incredibly simple, but also incredibly romantic and kind of lusty and garlicky and amazing. And the, the meal that you ate of mine was um, a petite aioli. You can have a petite aioli and a grand aioli and an aioli monstre. Okay. And a petite one is just vegetables uh-huh. and a grand one will have some beans and uh-huh. some squid. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, or salt So cod. was I supposed to dip the squid into the aioli? I dipped everything in. Really? Yeah. Oh, shoot. I, I probably didn't make it clear. But, um, yeah. And, and the great thing is also the ratio of mayonnaise to other ingredients that you get to eat in a, an aioli of any size. Because you can eat an enormous amount of garlic mayonnaise when the rest of the meal is, you know, boiled potatoes and boiled eggs and, yeah. um, you know, some, some pieces of raw vegetable and, and squid. And exciting. yeah, everything just gets dipped. So it's into just the like aioli. dipping and dipping. Yeah, that's, yeah. That's pretty endless, r- the endless, everlasting dip. <laughs> <laughs> Garlic mayonnaise. That's a really neat date meal that's, concept. I'll have yeah, to try that out. Do it's incredibly just easy dip to make. And then feed your partner. Yeah, it's yeah. And <laughs> mayonnaise, mayonnaise, garlicky mayonnaise, garlicky mayonnaise. <laughs> Dribbling and, down my chin. Yeah, all kinds of entendres. There's French involved, <laughs> which is romantic. Yes, anything French, just yeah, done. Done. We did it. Right, so, what is your favorite um, recipe in the book? If you if you could choose one, I know it's it depends on what you have during that day, and what how much time you have, and all that stuff. But yeah. If you could start from scratch and just pick anything, what is the best? In the first chapter, there's a recipe that isn't um, in recipe form. Uh, you know, as there there are 
there are many like that in the book, but in the very first chapter, um, there is a sort of long narrative that leaves you with a boiled chicken mm. and chicken stock. Mm. And uh, I think that's one of the most important and wonderful things that we can make. If, you know, boiled chicken has fallen far out of fashion, but that's because we're not super great at boiling right now. Yeah. And actually, boiling is a, is a far underrated technique. And uh, what, I, what I do in that chapter is... Um, is you know, explain to people how to salt a whole chicken okay, and how to put it in a pot and mm. how much water and vegetable scraps to put in and the level of boil that is best at, you know, in the pot. Um, and, and how wh- long? Yeah. And okay. I mean, and, and I think that everybody that has, that has read the book has come back at me and immediately with saying, I can't believe that boiled chicken is so great and Mm -hmm. that I taught a bunch of mothers um how to do what I did in that chapter to see what it if it would take and have gotten emails from all of them saying I boil a chicken every week and it really sets me off you know to a great start because I have that night's meal and the next day is lunch and I use the chicken stock and I also taught them how to make risotto with the chicken stock yeah and they they really started feeling like they were having that domino effect experience and I think that that's just one of the best things that 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 we can do and I boil a chicken if not every week every two weeks and and feel like it's one of it's like the tidal energy that I was talking about how to boil a chicken. How to boil a chicken. Thank you so much. I'm, I can't wait to try that now that it's getting, well, hopefully it'll get cold soon. Right. <laughs> we'll see. It will. As soon as you get used to the heat. All right. I'm going to definitely try that and try more of your recipes in here. And um, unfortunately, I can't make it to the book signing party, but it does sound pretty awesome next Monday at Book Tuesday, Court. Tuesday. Tuesday, the 18th at Book Court. Delicious Check it out. Rosé. Open to the public. Thanks so much, tomorrow. That Thank was really you, fun. Kathy. And uh, thanks to Jack and everyone at Heritage. Um, we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for listening to this program on the Heritage Radio Network. You can find all of our archived programs on heritageradionetwork.com, as well as a schedule of upcoming live shows. You can also podcast all of our programs on iTunes by searching Heritage Radio Network in the iTunes Store. You can find us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter for up-to-date news and information. Thanks for listening. As a part of National Food Day, St. John's Bread and Life, Brooklyn's innovative and life-saving food service program based in Bedford-Stuyvesant, is inviting Brooklyn chefs and purveyors to learn about how the organization is marrying the procurement of old-fashioned, locally-grown organic produce with the latest technology to deliver healthy, cost-effective meals to those in need. St. John's Bread and Life, located at 795 Lexington Avenue, will hold an open house on Monday, October 24th from 6.30 to 8.30 p.m. Visit www.foodday.org to sign up for the event. The following message has been brought to you by Taste Brooklyn. Our city's finest chefs partner with farmers and local vineyards next to the Green Market for an extraordinary outdoor culinary festival. Try exquisite delicacies using locally grown seasonal delights on the plaza outside Brooklyn's Borough Hall. Top chefs and artisans will offer sumptuous fare paired with premium wines all to empower our neediest children to get healthy. 
the mighty FDNY and DSNY harbor their own culinary masters in uniform. They will cook off against the pros. Sample delicious cuisine without stressing over a reservation while supporting a worthy cause. Taste Brooklyn's Field to Fork Outdoor Culinary Festival, Saturday, October 15, 2011, from 11.30 a.m. to 3 p.m. Learn more and buy tickets at tastesofbrooklyn.blogspot.com. That's T-A-S-T-E-S-O-F brooklyn.blogspot.com. This is a public service announcement from Sea to Table and Slow Food NYC. On October 11th, sustainable seafood distributor Sea to Table will join Slow Food New York City to host an event celebrating the bounty of local New York seafood. The event, Slow You Sustainable Sashimi, will feature a tasting of four fish species from local Montauk waters. The event will take place on Tuesday, October 11th from 6 to 8 p.m. at the Institute of Culinary Education, 50 West 23rd Street in Manhattan. Tickets are $25 for Slow Food members, $35 for non-members. Visit slowfoodnyc.org for more information about this event and how to get tickets.